thanks, Will, so much. Uh, you know, in, in, in our family, someone has to ask about weekly how many grandchildren we have because it changes so often. We just had our 12th grandbaby last month, and you, that's the reason you wouldn't have known about that. It is a delight to be here at Tate's Creek Presbyterian and for this very special conference, and I could tell from watching these funniest family videos that this congregation needs a lot of help when it comes to family. So I'm really glad to be here to talk to you about marriage and about the single life and about parenting. And they're all interconnected. And regardless of your marital estate uh, stage or your age uh, or your gender, all three of those things apply to all of us. I got married at 21 years of age. My wife was 20 at the time. So we know nothing about the single life from firsthand experience after becoming majority age. And yet, some of our closest friends. <laughs> and with all the people that we pastored through the years in the single life and all the uh, care and concern that we give to each other uh, as marriage to singles and singles to marrieds, uh, we have accumulated some knowledge through the years. And I look forward to talking to you about those things. This conference began, as you know, on Sunday morning when Pastor Robert Cunningham gave an excellent sermon. If you weren't here for it, I suggest you listen to it this week because it introduces what we're going to be talking about. And uh, his emphasis was on the family. And he, his, one of his major theses was that, if you remember, was that we focus on the family, but let's focus on our families. I remember some years ago, we had a major conference in Memphis at our largest church, largest church in Memphis. And all the names that you would recognize from around the country came to put on this conference that was to discuss the problem with the gay agenda in America today. And uh, the week after the conference, one of our members called me, uh, one of our members at Second Presbyterian Church and said, Pastor, this great conference was going on just down the street and you didn't say one word about it. I'm mean, really kind of ticked off at you. You didn't give us any warning about the conference. Nobody at second said anything about it. Well, we weren't trying to obscure the conference, but I explained to him, you know, the reason probably nobody said anything is that the pastors at Second Presbyterian Church have found that the gay people that are in our congregation are some of the most scrupulous people with their sexuality and the way they relate to other people. And honestly, in terms of pastoral time and energy, we don't have to spend much time at all with our gay members. It's you crazy heterosexuals that are causing us all the problems. And at Second Presbyterian Church, our problem is the heterosexual agenda. So we didn't want to waste any of your time or ours talking about the gay agenda when in most evangelical churches, the big problem is the heterosexual agenda. So I appreciate very much what Robert said on Sunday, I think very much. You and I, if we're members of evangelical churches, let's face it, most of our members are struggling with their heterosexuality. Now, for those of you who are same-sex attracted, I want to say that although you don't make up the majority uh, of our membership normally in evangelical churches, we're very aware of you. We're very concerned about your welfare and trust that this conference will be useful to you too. Because underlying everything we're going to talk about is a robust biblical theology of relationships and of marriage in the home. There are theological reasons for what we do. And whether you're same-sex attracted or opposite-sex attracted, you love the Lord. 
and you want to promote his agenda. And that's what we want to do uh, during this weekend together. That's exactly what we intend to do. Now, tonight, uh, I, as Will knows, I, I, I probably would have preferred to start with a single life. Because, and the reason we're not, by the way, is because so many of your college students will be coming tomorrow night. So we wisely, or they wisely, switched it so we'll talk about the single life tomorrow. But the reason I normally start with a single life is that your sex life doesn't begin or end with marriage. It begins with your conception. <laughs> you were conceived a sexual being. And you bring your sexuality to every relationship and every environment, every task and every mission that you perform. You're either a man or a woman. And you lead and serve as a man or a woman. It's important to know how to do that. And so we'll talk about that tomorrow. But tonight we're talking about marriage, which for many of us is a romantic relationship in which we enter in a covenantal relationship. And in all these cases, I want to look at a biblical text uh, with your permission, I'll roam a little bit from that. On Sunday morning, I'm a little bit more devoted to expositional preaching, rigorously so. We might roam a little bit off the text in our times tonight, tomorrow night, and Saturday morning, but generally we're going to be looking at a text. And you might turn to Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. We'll also project it on the screen here. And while you're turning, let me just start with this in marriage. It's difficult. <laughs> it's difficult. And for those of you who say, no, my marriage is not difficult, just keep it to yourself, would you? We're not interested. For most of us, we need to hear from people like me and from Robert and Will and others that we think marriage is difficult. You know, when I was growing up, I was born in 51, so, you know, by the time 1960 rolled around, we had Mayberry, you know, the Andy Griffith Show. And I have to say to you, Barney Fife, Don Knotts, is probably my favorite actor of all time. I just think Don Knotts is incredible. And so Barney was always my favorite character. And everybody talks about Mayberry and how charming it is and how wonderful it is and how we'd like to get back to Mayberry. But have you ever thought about this? Mayberry was a happy place, a very happy place. But have you ever thought about this? Everybody in the story is single. Andy's single. Barney's single. Helen's single, Thelma Lou's single, Aunt B's single, uh, Howard is single, Gomer, Goober, I mean, these are all single people. Ernest T, whatever his name is, is single. Opie was single. <laughs> the only one who was married was Otis, and he was drunk most of the time. <laughs> so, yeah, Mayberry is fun. No marital problems in Mayberry, you know? So, but we're, we're not living in Mayberry. We got some real relationships going on here and some real struggles going on here and Lord help us all. And that's the reason we're here tonight, isn't it? We want to help ourselves and we want to help others. I remember when Allison and I had been married about a year. It was 1973. We were living in Pennsylvania. I was a, a sales and marketing person with Bethlehem Steel Corporation at the time. I'll never forget where I was, the precise piece of furniture I was sitting on when she said to me, I think I probably just need to go home. She didn't mean our home, she meant her mom and dad's home. And I know what it's like to have the bottom of your gut just drop out, your soul just to be in darkness, feeling like everything has come to an end. I know that in marriage. And some of you know it. 
And some of you are having such troubles in your marriage, you're wondering if that might come up later. And so we, most of us here, if we've had any years of marriage at all, we, we know how desperately we need the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. We need the Lord Jesus Christ. Now as we look at married life, single life, and parenting, primarily, I mean, we only have a limited amount of time. And you're, you're always glad the preacher says that. We only have a limited amount of time, so I want to focus primarily on the Christian distinctives that apply to being married, the Christian distinctives of being a single person, and the Christian distinctives of parenting, okay? We don't have time to talk about all the wisdom in the world uh, on all those topics, but we'll try to stick to our text primarily and look at this idea of the distinctives of Christian marriage and singleness and parenting. Now, if you'll look at the text with me, let's read it, and I'd like to make some general observations first about the structure of Paul's argument in Ephesians 5. And then I want us to look at, in detail at the text. And before we read it, let us pray together. Father, we are deeply thankful for this opportunity to look at this major issue in the life of your church and in our individual lives. We're thankful to be in a church where the pastors and the elders care about our progress in these things. And we pray indeed that as we study together, we will progress and grow in our faith and become more like Jesus. And we make our prayer in his name. Amen. Ephesians 5 verse 21. Pull it up. How's that? Is that better? Is that better? Testing one, two, three. You like that? You want it up? I can put it in my mouth if you want. <laughs> how, about, how about this? Is that good? Is that better? Is it? Okay. Good. All right. The sound man, make no mistake about it, is the boss. <laughs> you thought it was the senior pastor? You thought it was the clerk of session? No, no, no. It's the sound guy. He's Let's look at verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. All flesh is grass, and all of its glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Now I want you to notice, first of all, the way that Paul carefully addresses each gender here. 
Normally in his ethical teaching, he addresses the church at large. But in this series, not only here, but with slaves and masters as well, and children and parents, he's addressing specific individuals. Here's why, especially with respect to marriage. As we'll see in just a moment, one of our problems is that we read each other's mail. I'm reading what Allison's supposed to do in our marriage. She's reading what Sandy's supposed to do in our marriage. And Paul says, wives, can I have your attention for just a minute? Just the wives, you husbands, take a nap. And he gives three verses. He says, okay, now husbands, let me have your attention. And he speaks to them directly. So read your own mail. That's the first thing I want you to notice is that in marital life or in any relationship, the key to growing in that relationship is to be sure and focus on yourself. Now let's just let's consider this for just a moment. I think in marriage, there is often a confusion between the goal of marriage and the duty of a marriage partner. And we conflate these two things, and I want to suggest to you tonight, they're distinct, they're related, but they're distinct and separate and different. And if you get them confused, you're not going to make the progress that you can make in Christian marriage. First of all, notice this about the goal of Christian marriage. The goal of Christian marriage is to glorify God through an intimate union that imitates Christ in the church. That's the goal of your marriage. It takes two of you. It actually takes three. You, your spouse, and the Holy Spirit. And what God is doing in a Christian marriage is to glorify himself by having this marriage be a microcosm of all of humanity relating to the deity. And since from the beginning, what God was doing in redemption is to bring us back into intimate harmony with him, that's what redemption does. It, it makes us one again with our creator. So also in marriage, we see that the intimacy of husband and wife is glorifying God because it displays to the angels and to all the world the intimacy that is provided in gospel redemption between God and his creatures. So that's the goal. It's a theological goal. And that's what will drive our concern for intimacy in our marriages. I've had people say to me, you know, I really don't want any intimate relationships. Well, if you're a Christian, you have no choice because the church is to be a family and we're to be intimate with one another in appropriate ways and a marriage in other ways is to be intimate because God has made us intimate because he's made us intimate with himself. But the duty of Christian marriage, notice this, the duty of Christian marriage is to glorify God through being a loving and faithful spouse. Notice the goal is for both of you in your marriage. The duty is for one of you. And this is where the confusion comes in. Sometimes a man or a woman will think it's their duty to have intimacy in the relationship. Well, in case you haven't learned yet, it takes two to tango. And you cannot create intimacy. Some of you are married to a blockhead. If this church is like ours, you've got men who are blockheads who have intimacy problems. And you're trying, you think you can control this. You think you can make yourself have an intimate relationship with a blockhead. Well, good luck, as Calvin used to say. I'm just teasing, he never said that. 
So the duty has to do with you, not with your marriage. If you don't remember anything else about this night, I hope you remember this. Your duty is not to have a great marriage. Your duty is to be a loving and faithful spouse. Those are two very different things. One of those things you cannot control. The other thing you can control. And you're responsible for it. One thing you're not responsible for is an intimate marriage. One thing you are responsible for is to be a loving and faithful spouse. Let's get focused. And with the so-called focus on the family, what it's done for many of us is to make us feel as though we're responsible for all the relationships we have in family. I'm not. I'm responsible for my contribution to those relationships. That's my duty. And God helping me, I want to fulfill it. And the beauty of this is that I can control that by the grace of the Holy Spirit. And it's a manageable duty. And it's regardless of circumstances. But most of us are thinking about marriage rather than being a loving and faithful spouse. I don't think I'll ever forget this. Some years ago, a friend of mine, Barry Timko, a few years older than myself. We were both in our 30s. I remember exactly where I was sitting when he told me this. I was sitting in his kitchen and he said this to me. He'd been married about a dozen years and he said, Pastor, I remember what I was thinking when Kathy was coming down the aisle. I said, you do? He said, yeah, I was standing right there and I remember what was in my head, three big things. I said, well, what was that? And he said, well, number one, I was thinking, I love 100% cotton shirts and she's great at ironing. <laughs> you were thinking that? He said, yeah. I said, what were the other ones? He said, well, I was thinking, secondly, I love Italian food and she is Italian and a great cook. I said, so you were thinking that when she was coming down the aisle? He said, yeah. I said, what was the other one? He said, well, you can imagine. I said, I was, he said, I was looking at her in all of her beauty. I was thinking, I can't believe I'm going to be between the sheets with her tonight. Those are the things in Barry's head at his wedding when he was standing right there and she was coming down the aisle. Now, why did he tell me that? Well, we were in his little kitchen. He had two daughters who were junior high age. We were in his kitchen and about 15 feet away in his little bedroom, was his wife in bed dying of cancer. And what he was saying to me was, I never imagined this. I never imagined that I would spoon feed her and take her to the bathroom and listen to her groan all night while she's dying of cancer. But he said, Pastor, the irony is when she got to the front of the church at our wedding, None of the things I was thinking about were mentioned by the pastor, nor did I promise to enjoy those things or anything else. You know what I promised to do? What I'm doing right now. That's what the wedding actually was. And I never even thought about it. And unfortunately, I think many men and women, when they think about their marriages, they're thinking about ravioli and 100% cotton shirts and sex and, or whatever it is you want to get out of your marriage and not thinking about actually what you covenanted to do before God. And that's the big deal. In fact, I want to say to you, that's the whole deal. 
If you make that paradigm shift tonight, you have made the biggest move in your Christian marriage. I don't know of any pagans that think this way. They would consider this self-abuse. Just like they consider the cross self-abuse. But we're Christians. We glory in the cross. And that leads to self-denial. And this is exactly what I'm talking about. There's the essence of the individual who is thoughtfully in his marriage. He has and she has made the difference in their minds. They understand it. The difference between the goal of a happy marriage and a healthy marriage and the duty of an individual mate. Now this leads to two fundamental maxims of Christian marriage that I'd like to get across. If you accept with me that the duty is to be a loving and faithful spouse and that's what you need to spend your time on. That's gonna take your whole life to get that done. And it's brutal work because I'm telling you, there's a lot to work on. The first maximum maxim is this, you're the problem. Your spouse is not your problem. And I say this intentionally, universally to every single one of you. There are no exceptions on this. Your spouse is not your problem. I'm not saying that none of us ever have to prosecute a divorce. I'm not saying that none of us will ever suffer deeply because of defective spouses. I'm not saying that. I sympathize with you. I'm just saying that your big problem is yourself. Your problem is sitting in your seat right now. And the beauty of this is, we've got an answer for this. The answer is Jesus. Jesus and you can work you out. Jesus and you won't necessarily work your spouse out. Jesus might, Jesus might not. But if you come to Jesus, here's what he says. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anybody in this room will open the door, I'll come in and sup with you and he with me. He promises you spiritual revival if you'll open the door to him. And that revival will enable you to be a loving and faithful spouse and you get an A plus on your personal report card. The beauty of this is there's an answer. When we accept our duties and our obligations and we get focused on what we're trying to do. So I suggest tonight we stop focusing on marriage. Well, let's focus on you. There's <laughs> a big difference. And I think, I think you'll see the joy of it as we go on. Maybe you're, you look a little like you're questioning me a little bit right now, and that's quite all right. But let me show you how Jesus is the answer. If my duty is simply to serve Allison, regardless of my circumstances, and folks, even if you have to divorce someone, you know, do you realize you can do that in love? And you can do that and comprehend caring for the other party while you divorce them. That's possible. In fact, for a Christian, it's required that if you divorce, this must be the way you divorce. It's actually an act of love. You're doing what's responsible for both parties. So it, it applies to everyone. And so what Jesus does for us, that he, he breaks something that enchains most of us in our marriages. It's called the quid pro quo. That's Latin for this for that. So if I have a quid pro quo relationship with you, you do this and I'll do that. 
Now, if you don't know how to do quid pro quo, please don't go into business. You'll be broke within a week. I give you the product, you pay the price. That's called quid pro quo. And frankly, ladies and gentlemen, every relationship you have, including the best relationship here, is to some degree quid pro quo because we're all sinners. The only relationship you have that is not quid pro quo is with your bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has broken their quid pro quo. Why? Well, actually, you do have quid pro quo with him. He's done the this. So what's your that going to be? Not toward him or her, toward him. So you take the quid pro quo, which you do by nature with your mate. You're always, you know, if well, she, she, didn't, she didn't say a kind word to me this morning, I'm not going to say anything to her either. She didn't apologize. I'm not going to apologize. Oh, you know how it goes. It's just endless. You know, acting like junior highs with apologies to the junior highs. We're actually worse than you are because we've been through junior high and we're still doing it. Uh, And you see this, don't you, in high places even. People acting like immature children. Well, here's what happens. You keep the quid pro quo with Christ Just try this for size sometime. So Jesus, what have you done for me lately? See if you can even get those words out of your mouth. You know it's ridiculous. He's providing everything for you. When you're at your absolute worst, at the extremity where you had no other answer for your problem, he laid down his life for you. And he's preparing a place for you right now that your mind cannot even imagine. He loves you unconditionally. So you've got the quid pro quo with him. You keep that one going. And then in the quid pro quo, you say, okay, Jesus, now I do remember you died on the cross for me. You sent your spirit in my life. You prepared a place for me. You're coming back to get me that I'll be with you and the Father. So now what would you like for me to do? Oh, go love her unconditionally? Is that, did I hear that correct? Go love her unconditionally? Yeah, okay, all right, here we go. Let me tell you, I've been a pastor for... 37 years and I still do this every day with my wife now if you knew my wife a few of you do she is the sweetest person on the face of the planet but there's a problem I just want to warn you single people if you marry a really sweet person like I did everybody knows when you all get in arguments it's your fault everybody knows it and everybody in our church knows if you all ever have a problem we're siding with Allison with with no questions asked it's obvious that's a problem. I, you know, I, 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 I was too young to think about that when I got married. But she is very, very sweet. But you know, even as sweet as she is, I'm a big enough sinner, I can still get irritated with her. And you know how you'll just sit there during the day and it'll pop up four or five times during the day and you think, oh, that didn't make me happy. Well, <laughs> at Second Presbyterian Church, it just so happens that one of the real joys of where my office was is that when I go home, which it's usually dark when I go home, I go downstairs out of the offices and I walk the hall and I have to go through the sanctuary to get to my car because the parking lot for my car is on the other side of the sanctuary. And I go in at night. All the lights are off except for the celestial windows up at the top where for some reason that only God designed, the light comes in, the ambient light from the street out 100 yards away comes in and shines right on a cross. It's the only thing illuminated by natural light. 
And you know what I do? Almost every night, I just come in and I just sit in that pew right there. I just have to sit there for about five minutes. That's all it takes, five minutes. Just look at the cross. And after about five minutes, I look at the cross and God says, now what was your problem? (laughs) I can't remember, Lord. (laughs) It's gone. (laughs) Seriously, seriously. Contemplate the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those of you who are not married, you're having troubles with relationships in school or those of you in the workplace, contemplate the cross of Christ. Just sit down and think about Christ and the cross. It's a powerful mystery, and it changes lives. This is the gospel. So when you adopt this approach that you're the problem and Jesus has the answer, you're into gospel business, and your marriage is, by definition, different. Now look with me at the text in specific now. The first thing we noticed is that Jesus is addressing you individually with your own individual text. If you're a husband or a wife, you need to read your own mail. And the reason is, your obligation is not a great marriage. Your obligation is to be a loving and faithful spouse. That's what you promised to do in your vows. And that when you do so, you've got an answer for that, and the answer is Jesus. You're the problem, Jesus is the answer. Now let's look at the text with that in mind. First of all, in verses 22 through 24, we see this. Wives must submit to their husbands. Oh boy, this is, what is this? Some cornball, right-wing, conservative, evangelical, fundamentalist church? Some people think so. They always will. All I'm doing is reading the text. And it's probably the most glorious text on marriage in the Bible. I noticed, I have noticed over the years, fewer people pick this text for their weddings. And I know why. Because of what I just read to you. It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. I'll never forget my second son when he was married. His wife, who has a non-evangelical family, she insisted that I talk on that passage. And I said to her, Carrie, uh, a lot of your family will be coming, and don't, don't you think there might be another text that they might relate to a little more easily? She said, no, I want that text. I said, yes, ma'am. And I have been saying yes, ma'am, ever since. My daughters-in-law are wonderfully strong women whom I love dearly. And indeed, it was a joy. And here's the first thing I want you to notice about submission. It's in the Bible a lot. It's 40 times in the New Testament, either submit or some derivative of that word. 23 times in Paul's writings. And in every case, it means the subordination of your will to the will of a person with authority. In every case. If you have the ESV study Bible, you can look at the notes and you'll see that the word head, when Paul says he's the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, you're told in those study notes that of the classic examples that we had of the use of the word kephale, head, it means authority. It doesn't mean what some egalitarians suggest, that it means source. Now, it can mean source, but in the majority of texts where it's being used, it means someone with authority. And furthermore, look at the context. Some say verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, means general submission in both directions. It's called mutual submission. The context shows you that's hogwash because Paul is giving you three examples of what he means by submitting to one another, and they're all authoritative relationships. Obviously, the slave-master is an authoritative relationship. Obviously, parent-child is an authoritative relationship. 
And he means that with, with respect to wives and husbands. There is an element of authority there. Now, of course, it's unique. It's not like children and, and parents. It's not like slaves and masters because you have two people who are shoulder to shoulder. You have two people who are partners. That's the word that's used in the Old Testament of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego and of husbands and wives. They're partners. They're shoulder to shoulder. But with that, there's nothing like it. Nothing else like it. Like the marriage uh, relationship and the authority structure that's in it, it's an authority given to one party where they are partners in the relationship. So here you have it. It's just clear as it can be. And this is not the only place in the New Testament. For those of my egalitarian friends, and I have a lot of them, evangelical egalitarians, who suggest, you know, they can explain away any verse in the Bible that has to do with the ordination of women in Christian ministry, I say, okay, look, I, I grant we only have a classic text or two on that matter. But when you look at marriage, which is the same concept, it's unique authority being given to a male in a male-female relationship. It's throughout the New Testament. Paul mentions it on several occasions, as does Peter. So if you don't like it, you're stuck with it. And with everything else that you're stuck with, here's your duty. Not only to accept it and practice it, but to love it. Ladies, it's your duty to love this. And I hope I give you sufficient reason to love it from the Word of God. And after all, if submission humiliates a person, then Jesus remains humiliated because he came in submission to his Father and he still is in submission to his Father. And they're co-equal. So we see how glorious submission is. Jesus glorified God through the cross where he submitted himself to the Father and to our greatest need. So with submission, ladies, you're not losing your identity or losing your mind. You're actually gaining the glory that God gives to us in this role. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, in verses 22 and 23, this submission is as to the Lord. And that means several things. First of all, it's voluntary. Nobody here has to get married. But if you're a Christian, you get married, you are voluntarily submitting yourself to another person in a way that's unique in terms of submission. Now, he's submitting to you in some ways. We'll look at that in a moment. But you're submitting to his authority. And if you don't want to do that, then you don't want a Christian marriage because that's what Paul says Christian marriage is. We'll see why in just a moment. So it's voluntary. It has to be something you want to do. I, I will often tell Christian women, in selecting a man, what you want to do is select a man to whom you will delight to submit. Now, sometimes you think you delight and then you marry him and realize this isn't so delightful. Uh, we'll talk about that too in just a moment. Secondly, it must be wholehearted. Not just of your own volition, but it must come from your heart. Something you really want to do because you, you're cultivating affection for him. And you can have affection for someone who irritates the stew out of you. You can do this. God gives you the grace. Think about God's affection for you. Have you ever thought about that? How does he love you? You keep doing the same old sins over and over again. It's like you're spitting in his face. And you, you have this prayer of confession... And then you have the assurance he just wiped your sins away. <sighs> really? Yes, really. And so we offer the same to one another. Thirdly, it's conditional. 
You're not a doormat. You haven't lost your mind. If your husband or any other authority in your life commands you to do something you must not do, you don't do it. If they forbid you from doing something you must do, you do it anyway. I've had wives who tell me, you know, I don't go to church because, well, you know, it would offend my husband. He's not a believer. And I think I give a better testimony by staying at home. Hogwash. Your husband is expecting you to do something to violate your commitment to the Lord. Forget it. You pay whatever price you have to pay. You do it humbly. We'll talk about how to do it in just a moment. But your commitment is to the Lord. All of our submission, my submission to the president and my governor and my mayor and my police is all in the Lord. It's conditional. My submission to elders is conditional. It's in the Lord. My submission to my husband will be conditional. It's in the Lord. The only person who can rightly submit to God-ordained authority is a person who is willing to disobey when they must. Let me say it again. The only person who rightly submits to divinely ordained authority is the person who is willing to disobey when he or she must. At the same time, the only person who can rightly disobey authority is the one who is eager to submit wherever he or she can. How so many of our movements today need to hear that. The only one who can rightly commit civil disobedience or any other authoritarian disobedience is the one who is eager to submit where they can. That's what we learn from our submission. Now notice in verse 24, it's in everything. It's your financial life, it's your professional life, it's your spiritual life, it's your sexual life, it's everything about your life. We're seeking to submit. Now, let me say why this is. Because to be honest with you, I don't know what Robert would say, but my experience in the church is, generally speaking, I don't know if this is cultural or what it is or just American, but the women seem to be smarter than the men. They seem to be more sensitive to the Holy Spirit and to the Word of God than the men. I find more women praying together than the men praying. I find more women in Bible studies than I find... So if we're just going to vote on the ones who seem to be excelling, I'll take the women. And so the question has to be asked, why is this calling upon the women who in my experience, I don't know what it was like in the first century, I just know what it's like in the 21st century, they seem to be excelling over the other gender. Well, there are two reasons, and we need to grasp this. Christian wives submit to their husbands because you are, number one, acting out a divine drama. Our marriage, if you're a Christian, your marriage is not just between the two of you. It's really sort of a communal event. You're acting out something. If we had a play tonight and we were all given scripts, you'd read your script and do your best to get into it. Ladies, you've simply been handed a script and the Lord of the universe is saying, I made you this way, male and female, and I made the institution of marriage so that it would display something about myself. There's something unique about myself I want the world to see, and I want them to see it through the way that you all relate. So, ladies, you all please step forward. I've got a script for you. Gentlemen, you step forward. I've got a script for you. And you simply get into the script. 
You don't ask yourself whether this suits you or not, whether you're the submissive type or not. No, just take your script. Some of you have seen the, the, the movie Lincoln, 2012, just a few years ago. And they said about Daniel Day-Lewis, who did a marvelous job of portraying Lincoln. His friend said, the man's been Lincoln for two years. I mean, he was acting like Lincoln when he was just with his friends. He just got into the script so much, he was, he was Lincoln everywhere he went. That's exactly what we do. We get into the script. We become the script. And if you couldn't do it, God wouldn't be asking you to do it. By the, by the grace of God, you can do it. So he gives you the script and says, get into it. So the first thing is we're acting out of divine drama. Secondly, we're building marital intimacy. Remember, Ephesians 1 verse 10 tells us the cosmic plan. The cosmic plan is to unite all things in the universe under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ so that he's king of a unified universe. That's the big cosmic plan. And marriage gives us a little microcosm of the grand redemptive work that God is doing. So it has to do with reconciliation and unity. So we create intimacy. So this is the way to do it. You say, now why would that be? Well, I'd like to show you. In building intimacy, we bridge natural gaps. When I do premarital counseling, I basically spend our six weeks talking about six natural gaps that have to be bridged intentionally and intelligently in order to have marital intimacy. And so if you're going to do your part as a husband, this is what you need to do. If you're going to do your part as a wife, this is what you need to do. And there are many gaps. I didn't put this one up here, but I'd suggest you put it up. Felt needs. There's a book by Willard Harley entitled His Needs, Her Needs, written about 30 years ago. And after 25 years of counseling marriages, he attempts to list the five strongest felt needs of males and the five strongest felt needs of females. Let me just say, they're different. If you come into a marriage, think you're going to treat your wife like a, one of your guy friends, which a lot of guys do for years, you will strike out. And ladies, if you think you're going to treat him like one of your girlfriends, you missed it. The felt need systems are very different. Secondly, personalities. When Allison and I first took a Myers-Briggs test, it was because we had called a psychologist to come and deal with our staff and just help us with, you know, relationships. And he met with each of the marriages in the staff. And so he met individually with Allison and me. And he had taken our Myers-Briggs test, test beforehand. We hadn't seen him yet, but he had. And we walked into the room. He said, how y'all doing? <laughs> I knew I was in for it. I said, uh, what, what do you mean? He said, well, I've counseled lots of people who are opposites on two out of four of the Myers-Briggs categories and a few that were opposite on three. I think you're the first one that was opposite on all four. If I write a book on marriage, the title I want has already been taken. It's entitled Incompatibility Grounds for a Great Marriage. And the reason it's grounds for a great marriage because when you know you're naturally incompatible, you're more intentional, you work harder on it. And it actually makes for a stronger marriage as Allison and I both would testify. But you've got these different personalities. You've got different family backgrounds, which means you're gonna have different expectations about roles, who does what, the, the way that you operate in your marriage. Sometimes it takes years to work out the differences in your family backgrounds. Love languages, you're very familiar with this. We're with Gary Chapman's book on five love languages. You need to know your mate's love languages. You need to know your love languages and how they're different. You think you're being as sweet as apple pie by bringing these gifts. And the whole time, all she wanted was a word of affirmation. And the reason you brought her gifts is because you love gifts. 
She doesn't. And you never bothered to ask. A gap. The sexuality gap is a huge one. We don't have time to deal with it this week. I wish we did and we'd have big attendance. But <laughs> let me just say this. Male sexuality and female sexuality are very different. I don't expect you single people to spend any time on this, but I expect you engaged people and married people to spend a lot of time on that. What is the difference between female and male sexuality? It's significant. But the biggest one to me is what I call the self-esteem development gap. And here's what I mean. When you're married, or if you get married, you would hope that your spouse would be your best friend. And some of you tonight, as Alice and I would say, she's my best friend, and there's not a close second. Well, maybe my children, but really not. There's nobody like a spouse of 45 or 46 years. What is a best friend? Think about the dynamics of your, your same gender best friends. I think from a psychological point, I could, uh, perspective, I could explain it this way. Psychologically, what's happening when you have a best friend whether you realize it or not, psychologically what's happened is you feel better about yourself when you're with them. Think about that. A best friend always makes you feel good about yourself when you're with them. So if you want a best friend, you need to learn how to do that. And males and females have big gaps and especially in how their self-esteem is developed. So my best friend understands the development of my self-esteem and ministers to it, knows how to encourage me and how to challenge me based on how my self-esteem is developed. And men and women are very different. Let's talk about the men. Any wife here knows that men have the male ego. <clears throat> male ego. And it doesn't take you long to be married to realize a second thing about the ego, it's not only a peculiarly male ego, it's a big male ego. <laughs> big, big. But here's the mistake that most women make in marriage. They think that because it's big, that it's also strong. Gong, no. Here's what it is. Big, fragile male ego. Now, I, if you've never heard this, I've just introduced you into the secrets of the universe. If you're single, forget everything I said because you can use this to manipulate men. And when I teach you about women, the men can do the Don Juan thing and manipulate women. You'll find sexual seductresses and uh, people who are unfaithful in their marriages, they usually do what I'm talking to you about. But we must learn how to love each other deeply in our marriages. So ladies, you have to understand this big ego that gets angry so easily and so defensive and ticked off and irritated and frustrated. Of course, the big male ego is very helpful if you're walking down the streets of Lexington late at night. You're glad to have this big male ego next to you because if anybody lays a hand on you, he is going to fight to the death. You just attack his ego by attacking his woman. So you're safe and you love it. But then when you go home for tea, it's a different story. It's not so much fun. Why did you not know that it's fragile? He never told you. Why did he not tell you? Because his ego is fragile. And he does, not, he does not want to admit to you that his ego is fragile. Now, why is his ego so important? 
And I'm only talking in descriptive terms, not prescriptively. No man has an excuse to base his life on his big, fragile ego. I'm just being descriptive, okay? Psychological mumbo-jumbo. So why is his ego important to him? Because when he goes in the outside world, he, he needs his self-confidence. And if anything threatens his self-confidence, he tends to either fight against it or move away from it. So if you don't know that you're undermining his male fragile ego, and he won't tell you because it's too fragile to admit, you, you find him either fighting you or moving away from you. This is the dynamic that goes on. I know women married 25 years and they've never, this has not crossed their minds. I could tell you some stories, we don't have time. But the fact is, because of this ego, he longs for respect. I'm telling you, the number one felt need among most men I know, sometimes they don't even realize it, is to be respected. Now, ladies and gentlemen, would you please look at verse 33 and what does the ancient apostle Paul tell women to do? Respect your husband. Why? Because he knows something about the large, fragile male ego and he knows what it takes to create unity in a marriage. So the woman has a peculiar role to play to be a partner with a person who's got this seemingly impossible large, fragile ego. How in the world do you deal with it? Well, I'm glad you asked. The way you deal with it is gently. You're careful with him. He comes home from work and you say, you look a little down, what's up? You say, well, in the law firm today, Bob and I had a disagreement. Why'd you have a bit disagreement? Well, I called him a jerk. You did what? You just wounded his ego. Let's replay the tape. Sonny, why are you so upset? Well, things didn't go that well at work today. What happened? Well, Bob and I had an argument. Well, why did you have an argument? Well, I called him a jerk. And inwardly you're going, I can't believe he did that. That idiot, what's he thinking? But you say, Honey, you know, you and Bob have had a great relationship and you, you have wonderful relationships in the law firm. I know there must have been some reason why you let that fly. I mean, and you've been so good about healing relationships and they've gotten strained. What, what are you thinking you're going to do? She's so smart. <laughs> He's going to tell her as the professional mediator exactly what she would have told him in giving him advice. But she has been gentle and respectful of her husband. Now, I know things get more complicated than that. And ultimately, when you can't solve it, you go get help. That's what pastors are for. That's what counselors are for. When you can't break through and you know you have to give him advice, you know you have to come to truth and justice and love and all the rest, and you can't get there from here, get advice. You're, you're hopelessly conflicted as a, as a member of the marriage and you, you can't see everything. There may be some things you can do you hadn't thought of. Get help. But you want to show respect. And that will enable you to draw near to him. Likewise with his secrets. You don't go publishing abroad things that he considers to be private to him. And in case you hadn't noticed, these people with large, fragile egos control their personal information more than people who don't have large, fragile egos. I remember my wife thought it was real funny that one Sunday I couldn't find any underwear and I had to wear some Valentine shorts. And she thought it was funny to tell all of her girlfriends. And I'm thinking, you did what? Well, it was kind of funny. That's not a good example. But you know what I'm saying? Men will get defensive and protective of their information. Why? Well, males, generally speaking, derive their self-esteem from their productivity outside the home 
and the woman more inside the home. So in dealing outside the home, information is power. If you, the more you know about me, the more you can persuade me and get something out of me. So I tend to control my information that I give to you. When I was a steel salesman, I used to always want to take the CEO out to dinner with his wife. Because <laughs> I'd get to know about all the children, where they were in college, what the problems were. And I actually would know him better because his wife was more willing to disclose. Ladies, be very careful. What you want to do is read your husband. Find out how he wants his information controlled. And then you know what that makes you? A confidant. You have his confidence. You will be his trusted confidant because you're controlling information the way. Now, some husbands are whacked out. Once again, get help. Get him to get help. But you know what I'm saying. In general, you, those are the kind of the things you need to learn. Also, I remember when E.V. Hill, the great evangelist and pastor in Los Angeles, when he, his first wife died, some of you may have heard that funeral eulogy. If you haven't, Google it and get it. E.V. Hill's funeral eulogy of his wife. One of the little vignettes that he told was about his wife. Uh, E.V. Hill, of course, was African-American. He had grown up in a very poor environment in Texas, and he was serving poor people in the Watts area in Los Angeles. Didn't have a lot of money. One day he came home for dinner late at night, and his wife, whom he adored, he called her baby. He adored her. And he went to his apartment and she had all the lights off and had a candlelight dinner. And he thought, well, this is really nice. So he goes and sits down and says, are we having a candlelight dinner? And she says, yeah. And then he noticed that all the food that she was serving was cold. And he said, why are you serving just cold food? He said, oh, honey, I just wanted to have a, a, you know, a cold meat candlelight dinner. It wasn't until an hour and a half later he realized it was because he couldn't pay the electric bill and the power was cut off that she made a candlelight dinner for her husband. That's what I mean about respect. Submitting to your husband, giving him the esteem that he's longing for. Well, gentlemen, let's look at your text. We have a few minutes to do that. Husbands must love their wives. In this text, gentlemen, there are nine verses for you and three for the women. That should tell you something right off the bat. <laughs> the word love is in this text six times. And at the end of the text, you get it again, verse 33, where the apostle says, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Love, love, love. Her strongest felt need typically, typically, is for affection, conversation, openness, and transparency, which challenge many men in this room. We are to love our wives. First of all, verse 24, 25, to the death. To the death. Some of you say, well, I'd be willing to die for my wife. Somebody threatened her life, I'd lay my down my life. How about in day-to-day -day activity? laying down your life. You're to die continually. The only way you can live the Christian life is to take up your cross and follow him. You take up the instrument of execution every moment of your life. You're dying all the time to live the Christian life. And Paul is saying, in marriage, you die all the time. I had a couple coming to me for marriage counseling. They've been married over 25 years. And I eventually asked the wife if I could just have some private time with the husband. 
Because frankly, here's what I've discovered in my 36 years or 37 years. Most of the problems go back to the husband. If we could get the husband straight, normally the marriage would, would run fairly well. Now, I'm not saying the wives aren't sinners. I'm not saying they don't contribute to the breakdowns, uh, breakdowns in marriage. I'm just saying the main problem is usually the husband. In this case, it was crystal clear. And at one point in our conversation, I just simply said to him, I'll call him Joe. I said, Joe, could you give me an illustration in your 25 years of marriage where what Jesus has done for you on the cross consciously changed what you said or did in your marriage? He could not think of one instance. I said, Joe, I'm not the Lord, but I really wonder if you're converted at all. I don't think you are. And this man was in church for 40 years. I don't think you're converted. I don't see how you could possibly be converted. If you're a teenager and you can't tell me events in high school or things you did or didn't do in high school because you were thinking about the cross of Christ, I don't think you're converted if you've never had those experiences. That's what Christians do. Gentlemen, we're dying all the time. It's a conscious discipline to take up your cross in your marriage all the time. And this is your duty. And frankly, this is the only duty. Your duty is not to have a great marriage or a wonderful wife. Your duty is to take up the cross in the marriage. You're to die. Secondly, verse 26 and 27, it's for a reason. It's for her glory. It's for her sanctification. He says, so that she may be sanctified. You lift her up by your death. It's not just, hey, honey, see how much I love you, and then go stand in front of an oncoming car. That doesn't prove anything. But you are dying to lift her up. I remember my first pastor after I became a Christian, I didn't become a Christian until I was 25, so you can imagine what the early days of my marriage were like. Anyway, my, my pastor's wife said to me one time, this is 30 plus years ago, 35 years ago, she said, she said, Sandy, I don't want to be equal with my husband. I don't want to come down to that level. <laughs> and here's what she meant. She said, he treats me like a queen. He lifts me up. Why do I want to go down to where he is? He's got me on the throne as a queen. Ladies and gentlemen, I tell you, in all my years of pastoral counseling, I've never had a woman who had a man like that about whom she was complaining having to submit to. That's never happened to me. Gentlemen, please give your wife a, a favor by giving her something easier to submit to than your old knucklehead self. Give her someone who will lay down your life for her, for her sanctification. You're interested in her. That's what it's all about when you get married. Thirdly, through pastoral care, there's a method for doing this. And the two big words here are nourishes and cherishes. And the word nourish just means to feed. So materially, you're feeding her. Spiritually, you're nurturing her in the faith. You nourish her materially and spiritually. The word husband is a gardening word. It means to take care of a vineyard or a garden. The word shepherd means to take care of sheep. It's the same thing. Every family has a senior shepherd. His name is husband. That's the very definition of your role is pastor. So really we could just call the husbands pastors. 
because they're to pastor their wives and pastor their children. You nourish them. You provide for them. You put food on the table, if you will, and you put the word of God out there for them. We'll talk about that more on Saturday. But then you cherish her. I remember an old story that uh, Paul, uh, what's his name, the, the newsman, journalist that died 30, 20 years ago. Pardon me? Paul Harvey, thank you. Paul Harvey told this story. He said there was a woman in Minnesota. Her name, I still remember. This is 25 years ago. Carol Coleman. And he said, Carol Coleman, her husband had just bought her a new car. She loved her new car, but it was an icy day in Minneapolis. And she was out on the highway and she wrecked the brand new car. She dissolved into tears. The man whose car she hit pecked on her window. She rolled it down or zipped it down. He said, Madam, you might look in your glove compartment. Usually there's some insurance papers or something in there that will help us deal with this. And he said, I'm sorry. So she reached over in the glove compartment and she pulled out, she saw an envelope. And on the front of the envelope, on the outside of the envelope, it said, in case of accident. Perfect. So she pulls it out, opens it up, and it's a note. And here's what it says. Remember, it's you I love and not the car. <laughs> There's a man who cherishes his wife. Gentlemen, I'm going to play this scenario for you and then, then we'll, we'll close up in just a moment. I want to try to illustrate what I'm talking about. The self-esteem of a woman is not developed primarily by respect, although respect is important. The self-esteem of a typical female, and I don't think this is just Southern or Kentuckian, I think it's in general, best I can tell, certainly in Western culture. The self-esteem of a woman is primarily developed through her perception of the health of her key relationship. So self-esteem development has to do with a key relationship and how that's going. Now, ladies, don't take it personally. That's not generally true with the men. I've already told you. Their, their self-esteem is primarily developed by how, the, how successful they think they're being in the outside extra family, out, uh, outside family world. But for a female, generally, it's with a key relationship. That's the reason daddies is so important to date your daughters. Because when they look into your eyes and see that you delight in them, that tells them more about themselves than if they're looking into a mirror. When the father is willing to hand over his Stradivarius daughter to the ape who's standing in front of the church, <laughs> he's just hoping that he'll take care of her in some way. And he doesn't know how to put it into words, but somehow he knows how important his affection and cherishing of his daughter has been to her, and he's just hoping this knucklehead can pull it off. And usually it takes him a while, and the wife suffers for a good while, unless he comes to Christ and then begins to grow in Christ and realize, you know, females are different, and I want to love her in a way that's meaningful for her. So let me give you an example. If you go to a party, and it's men and women, and you go with your wife, gentlemen, you go into the door and you notice right away, the ladies are over here talking about, 
I mean, there may be some professional people over there, doctors and lawyers and so on, but still, they're probably talking about children and curtains and things that they, they have fun with. The men are over here, usually, in a group by themselves, talking about the, the cats, you know, or somebody else, some sports or business or something that men enjoy just talking about. And you come in and you don't think a thing about it. You, you know, your wife just goes with the girls and you go with the guys and you don't think anything about it. But gentlemen, all the women that you thought were talking to each other, and they were, but you remember, women have multiple ports. They were talking to each other and they noticed everything you did. And here's the conclusion they draw. You're just like the rest of them. You don't know what you got. You go, what? I didn't, what? I didn't, I didn't do anything. I, that's just the point. You didn't do anything. And they would never say this. They would never say this. But in their view of things, you're an average guy who's kind of, you know, doesn't get it. And you may as well have stood up on a chair and announced, here's my wife. She's an average woman. You'll enjoy getting to know her. Now, when, the, when you go, men, when you go over to your group of men, there's a pecking order. Nobody ever talks about this, but it's true. What you're doing if you're a man, you go over to that group and you're trying to figure out who's in here and what are their backgrounds. Because depending upon where you fit into the group is how much you'll be talking. If you're toward the top of the group, you'll do more talking. If you're at the bottom, you may ask a few questions. For example, if there's someone there that was a high school quarterback, well, he's pretty near the top. Someone who's made multiple millions, oh, he's pretty near the top. Oh, if someone played NFL football, it's a no-brainer. He's at the top of the pyramid. And you're figuring out where you go in so you know how to conduct yourself based on the pecking order. Now, gentlemen, there is a pecking order with the women as well. But it has nothing to do with the stuff I just said about the men. Their pecking order has to do with how's your key relationship going on. So what you did was unintentionally, you just introduced your wife to this group of women as an average person. She ought to just fit right in there just fine as a kind of a half nobody. Let's replay the tape. You come into the party. The women over here talking about whatever they talk about. The men over here talking about whatever they talk about. Your wife is used to it, so she's getting ready to go off with the women. And you just grab her skirt and say, well, where are you going? She says, what? He said, give me your coat. She says, oh, well, thank you, honey. Appreciate that. You take her code. She tends to, she starts to walk off and you say, whoa, 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 whoa. She says, what? And you say, what would you like to drink? She says, oh, just a Diet Coke. Well, that's fine. I want you to stand right here. Don't move a muscle until I get back with your Diet Coke. So he goes over and hangs your coat up, brings you a Diet Coke. And then he says, uh, here's your Coke. And you say, okay, thanks. And, and, he, and he grabs your skirt again. He says, what? And he says, well, before we split up here, we got some options. You could go to the women, I could go to the men, or you could go to the men, I could go to the women, or we could both go to the women, or both go to the men, or you know what my favorite thing is? Let's both just stand right here. <laughs> and she says, Stop it. <laughs> you say, Well, really? I'd just soon spend the evening with you. She says, Sweetie, stop it. You're embarrassing me. Stop it. <laughs> and so you say, no, you go talk to the men. I'll go talk to the women. And she starts to walk off. And you grab her skirt one more time. She says, honey, stop it. And you plant a big one right there. Now the ladies are going, ha, ha, ha. Now the men didn't notice a thing. But the women were watching this entire drama. And they're amazed. 
at what they see. And they can't wait for this woman to come over to their group. They want to know what in the world is going on. How did you train that man? Where did you find him? What's your life like? How many kids are you going to have? I mean, there, you may as well have stood up on a chair and said, ladies and gentlemen, this is the greatest woman in Lexington, Kentucky. You're going to meet her tonight. Men have no idea of the self-esteem development that comes with affection and kindness and courtesy. She's not like one of your guy friends. She's different. Her self-esteem is developed differently. And you love her and you're willing to die for her. Well, start now, die. Die to yourself of just being a guy who lives in a guy's world. No, you cross over. You enter the female world and you say, I'm going to understand it and I'm going to love. And what happens is, here's what I found, that in dealing with Allison this way, it's changed my relationship with the entire female world. Let me tell you why. The women in this group, they do want to talk to her. They want, look, if they're from Kentucky, they have class and she'll go over there. They won't say a thing for about three minutes. And they'll say, honey, tell us about you and Bob. We want to know. And they debrief her and she's launched to the top of that pyramid. But what else happens is they don't know you, but here's the assumption they draw. He likes women. And if he knew me, he'd like me. What you're doing is relating to the entire opposite gender through treating your wife like a queen. You're showing respect and care for 51% of the world's population when you learn how to deal with the woman that's in your house. And when your daughters and your sons see you dealing with the female, the senior female in your household that way, it changes everything in the way they see the world, in the way they see marriage, in the way they see relationships. So I pray that this text that we're studying tonight will be your key parenting text because frankly the key things our, thing our kids need humanly is for daddy to love mama and mama to respect daddy and when we've got that we've got ourselves basically a healthy home so Allison said to me about 44 years ago I think I just I go home And the next year we became Christians. And things began to change. And now, in our 46th year, she is my best friend. And our five children are all in Presbyterian churches. <laughs> with their spouses. And our 12 grandbabies are all being taught the Bible at home. Their parents are praying with and for them. They're in Sunday school. And when we get together, they, they want us to read them a Bible story. I'm so grateful. I didn't do it. The Lord did it. And he can do it with you, no matter what your circumstances. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this institution of marriage which helps all of us, single or married, 
Help us in these days to draw strength from your spirit and by the love of the Lord Jesus Christ to be the men and women you want us to be. We pray that you'll build up Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church families so that wives are deeply, from the heart, respecting their husbands. And the husbands are wholeheartedly loving their wives that you may be glorified through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.